Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is uh, Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We're taking up the Gospel today, which is a reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 4, 21 to 30. It's a continuation of the story of Jesus at the Nazareth Synagogue, where they had handed him a scroll to open, and he read the scroll. He chose Isaiah 61.1, about you will see the, the blind see and the lame walk and so forth. And then he announced to them, this day you will see this fulfilled and, uh, in your presence. And in a way, therefore, announcing to them who he is, because he is the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. And they're all pretty much amazed at this. But then the story takes a darker turn. And the one thing I think that, that we should really look at carefully in, in the Gospels, remember that Jesus is the author of human nature. He is not the one who distorted it through original sin. Um, that was the combined effort of, uh, of humanity and, and the demonic. And uh, portrayed for us as is Eve and the serpent. That uh, he certainly understands both, however. <clears throat> and so when he says this, he, he certainly gets the proper response at first. And they were all astonished by the gracious words that came from his lips. They were, they were amazed that one of their own village sons has come back and uh, is, is quoting, is preaching in the synagogue, quoting the scriptures, quoting of the prophets, and announcing the fulfillment of messianic prophecy in himself. And he said, uh, and so they were astonished by the gracious words that came from his lips. They were thrilled. They were happy. Um, but he knows something else is going on as well. And they said, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son, surely? But he replied, no doubt, then. Once you have identified me as being local, once you have identified me as, as, uh, as being Joseph's son, uh, no doubt you will quote me saying, physician, heal yourself. And tell me, we have heard all that happened in Capernaum. Do the same here as in your own countryside. And the first, the first hint of resentment. If he is going to be the Messiah, if he's going to be the famous person, what is he doing in Capernaum? Why doesn't he come home and bring prestige to their own village? Um, and, and, and he went on, I tell you solemnly, no prophet is ever accepted in his own country. Um, because he said, because you wouldn't accept me if I came back. Um, if I came back and did in Nazareth what I'm doing in Capernaum, you would really have very little to do with me. Um, I think that, you know, sometimes if we come from smaller towns, even from larger towns, and, uh, you know, you can look up on, on Wikipedia who are the famous people from where I came from. Um, for some of us, we have the distinct privilege of having no one famous coming from where he came from. But um, but uh, he says, really, that this is just not the way that people accept things. This isn't just the way that they are. Um, and so then he went on and he explained to them, you know, there were many widows in Israel 
can assure you in Elijah's day, when heaven remained shut for three years and six months and a great famine raged throughout the land. But Elijah was not sent to any one of these, but was sent to a widow at Zarephtha, a Sidonian town. In other words, from Sion. And... Uh, in one of the cities of the Decapolis, one of the Gentile cities. And uh, Tyre and Sidon is how he usually is. It's usually referred to in the Gospels. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many lepers in Israel, but none of these was cured except the Syrian, Naaman. And so he he tells them, you know, it's always been like this. Um, look at even in the Old Testament, that when the local communities rejected the prophets, um, then the prophet worked his miracles elsewhere. Um, this seemed like a kind of a radical insult to them. Um, it was telling them in a way that, uh, that they were not worthy of uh, the manifestation of the prophetic presence within their small towns of, of, of Israel. And so when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged we might say enraged would be a little bit uh, strong for the reaction in our culture, in our world, but for people to be agitated, for people to be irritated that they were being passed over by one of their own, um, then it, it kind of um, it kind of got them rumbling and it kind of got them upset and distressed. And... Uh, and in here, it, it led to, to the threat of violence. And so they took him up to the brow of the hill their town was up built on and intending to throw him down the cliff, but he slipped through the crowd and he walked away. So basically, he worked them up to a certain extent of where they were willing actually to seriously harm him. Um, I was at Nazareth. I don't recall a cliff particularly high enough maybe to kill someone, perhaps there was, but at least to cause him severe physical harm, if not kill him. And uh, they probably would have had very little problems. <clears throat> they pushed him over and he didn't survive. They might have, you know, regretted the violence the next day, but that day they certainly did not. And so what we have then is a confrontation between Jesus Christ the, uh, the child of Joseph and Mary in, in Nazareth, coming back to his native place um, and, and irritating, agitating the local citizenry by refusing to do what they ask and by kind of, uh, kind of pointing out folk comings and shorts as he does so, gets them tremendously upset to where they're willing to do him great physical harm. And when that comes to that point, obviously his time is not yet ready for that. He simply slips through the crowd and he walks away as they're in their kind of bloodthirsty agitation. What are we to get from all of this? I mean, it's an interesting story and, it, and it's, a, it's an interesting, although it does seem like Jesus certainly has, has poked them. He certainly has uh, annoyed, an, annoyed them. Um, that it didn't really necessarily have to work out this way. Um, but it, it did work out this way, which points out a dimension of, of human nature, which is not really um, the most edifying one. And, 
and then Jesus simply walks away, and we have we have no more record of him coming back to Nazareth. I mean, Nazareth is is in his rearview mirror at this stage of the game. He's not he's he's not coming back again. So, what do we get from this? And the thing that that I always get from this. <clears throat> is that it, it really, that faith in the person of Jesus Christ, all humanity who has it for a long time, has the capacity to have it kind of get lost inside their own perceptions, within their own understanding, within their own habits of their lives. I think, for instance, um, I know that... Uh, that at, at my age, I look back on the on the church that I grew up in. I see it in in some ways, um, understanding too. It had its own shortcomings, its own shortcomings. It it has all sorts of things in it that probably could have been better. And yet, at the same time, because I was a young child during it, it has a certain amount of of uh, nostalgic uh, appeal to me. It it has uh, it has a sense. Of, of kind of being mysterious and different than it is today. Today it seems in a way very pedestrian and, and um, compared with kind of all the, the excitement that we had with it as, as young people. And yet at the same time what we go through therefore day by day, we can begin to take for granted and, and I think even if you talk to even if you talk to some of the clergy and it, it's kind of interesting because certainly the Mass is where we hold the God himself in our hands and we share him with you. It, it, is, it is a time of, uh, of dramatic encounter and a time of a dramatic Paschal event in the universe. And yet sometimes we can become indifferent to it. Sometimes it becomes kind of a... Uh, just an ordinary routine kind of thing that we do. Every once in a while, someone can shock us back out of that simply by simply by uh, uh, reminding us of what it is that we do. Um, I'm afraid that if if we didn't have that capacity to turn it into the ordinary for us from time to time, that we would not have the emotional stamina and energy to keep doing it every day. I think that's a part of the protection that we have, that if we really, really, really <clears throat> realized the uh, we 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 realized the 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 drama and the full impact of what we were doing, we probably would not have. We probably couldn't keep doing it. Um, there's many people who who uh, you know to, to honor the to honor the Eastern Church by saying, well, their priests don't do daily Mass. They only do it on Sunday, so they're able to, to, to gear up for it more, able to be, be participated in it, in it even more. Um, that's probably not why they don't have daily Mass in the Eastern Church. But, but it, is, it is a fact that there is certainly a lot more space in the Eastern Church for us to reflect upon the... Uh, the nature of the mass. The great saints do. I know they do, but um, but probably the majority of us who are not great saints 
we follow this this human road, this this human tradition. And I think that people who come every day do the same thing as well, that there is kind of an indifference. And, and by that, I don't mean malevolence. I just simply mean that, you know, it's 9 o'clock, you go over and say Mass, and that's the way it is, that's your daily schedule. And, uh, and, and that's what happens, and we can have wonderful experiences but we have a tendency also to begin to take it for granted. And, and I think that certainly the, the, the all-present um, understanding of, of Jesus Christ as present to us in the Blessed Sacrament, in our daily, our daily worship of the Lord, can oftentimes become routine for us. And when it becomes routine for us, we become maybe less zealous and we are less we are less moved and motivated by the power of the sacrament and um <clears throat> and so what happens is we we trudge on in a way through our christian faith without it really assaulting us in a very good sense of that way our consciousness from day after day to week after week but here it says <clears throat> when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. How dare you think we could become indifferent to the messianic appearance? Well, what's more indifferent than becoming enraged at him? So they sprang up to their feet and hustled him out of the town. And they took him up to the brow of the hill their town was built on, intending to throw him down the cliff. But he slipped through the crowd and he walked away. Luke is saying that this kind of indifference, this kind of, well, here we go again kind of thing, is, uh, is basically um, a cause of, of intolerance, too. You know, I mean, if this, is, if this is the Messiah, if this is the living God, uh, and he's walking around around us, and uh, it's just kind of, well, you know, just kind of ordinary... And uh, with that just kind of ordinary comes a depreciation of the messianic nature of Jesus Christ and his presence within our own lives. If we can strive even a little bit to remember this gospel, and each time we go to Mass and we can see Jesus um, in the sanctuary and we can see him, you know, performing the great works that the Messiah is to perform, especially the fulfillment of the prophets, um, it should inspire us tremendously. But actually, he said, it's probably not going to inspire you directly um, for the time that lies ahead for me. It will be amply described and amply seen, and you can take what you see and you can read and you can allow your faith to grow and to explode in relationship with that. Um, but for those for those of us who do not see the Eucharist, I don't want to say those of us who do not receive the for those who do not receive the Eucharist as an eschatological event as the real presence of the living God, um, then we ourselves don't deserve very much. When in the prophet Elisha's time there were many lepers in Israel, but none of them was cured except the Syrian Naaman. Well, you know what that was. Um, Elisha told him to do something very simple. Simply go down to the riverbank and wash seven times in the Jordan. And he said, no, 
I can wash. I got waters better than the Jordan back in Syria. I can go wash in them, and nothing's going to happen there either. But Elisha took pity on him, actually. And, uh, and the commentator says, the author says, Luke says, um, as in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many Sir- um, lepers in Israel, but none of these was cured except the Syrian Naaman. In other words, God chose that day not to kill any, uh, not to cure any other Arabs, any other aliens into the uh, in, in 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 Nazareth and and in Israel. He chose to to cure only um, a Syrian general. So when they heard this and the synagogue was enraged, they sprang to their feet and so forth. Once again, it's kind of an extreme reaction. Um, it's not a positive reaction. It's not a, it's not a mature reaction. It's not, a, it's not a holy reaction. It's not sitting back and say, wait a minute, you know. Um, he did do all these things. If he can do all these things, who are we to rebel against him? Well, there's the story of sin too, isn't it? If he can do all these things, who are we to rebel against him? That's when we come to the point to ask, what is the relevance of this, of this gospel for us? And I think that there's three or four points that I'd like to make. The first is the tendency toward familiarity leading to contempt, the, the, uh, the familiarity of becoming contemptuous of the extraordinary in our midst, um, because of uh, all the accruements that we find with that. For instance, just yesterday we had a big wedding at St. Cecilia, and all the priests were there to celebrate. And uh, it's interesting, because while we had maybe eight priests on the altar for the, for the celebration, that it immediately it, it went to... Uh, to the reception, and then the reception, of course, immediately to the food and then the music and all of that kind of thing. And we could ask ourselves, certainly, this is a great celebration. It is it is the the sacrament of regeneration and the sacrament of life within the church, for heaven's sake. And we should rejoice, and we should be be happy, and we should make it a very happy, memorable day for the couple. But the fact of the matter is, I wonder how many of us paused and thought of the sacramentality of the moment. Um, When we heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged, and they sprang to their feet and hustled him out of the town. That this was a very different reaction to the celebration of a sacrament. It was a very different relation to him coming to his own. And that his coming to his own, and we know that in John's Gospel, the wedding feast of Cana is not one of the major signs. It's a minor sign. It's the beginning of the book. And, uh, and there is nothing there for Jesus to do. Jesus himself is no longer anticipated. And the only way he has anticipated is through um, the use of, of holy red. So... So they turn in the wedding yesterday. They turn to his great celebration, um, but here they they turn instead to anger, and they have they have the tools of getting angry with them too. They've got um, 
they've got the uh, the wine and the celebration and all of that. Fittingly so, we should have an even more profound celebration for weddings, given the given the fact that uh, that we have the sacrament itself, and not just the prefiguration of it. That we have a happy day, a day when people are supposed to be joyful, not upset, and not angry. And so, what we do here is that we feel in even a lesser way to give proper adulation and proper proper adoration, proper um, so-called gratitude to the living God um, because it's, it's not, um, it's just not really the same for us. But the fact that there is an emotional reaction is the same. For here it's anger, with us, it's joy. Let's look at our lives just a little bit then. And let's ask ourselves, you know, what, what are the reasons for a difference of response? What's the reason for the difference between anger and joy? One of them is, of course, that the joy is you care for the couple who got married. You're thrilled with them. And uh, you want to make them have a happy day. And people who host parties usually are happiest if the people that they host are in fact happy to be there. Here in this other situation, when Jesus first of all appears graciously into Nazareth, then what he does is he turns a sharp edge of his tongue toward them in a kind of a corrective sort of manner. And he says, this is Joseph's son already, the people say, surely? But he replied, no doubt you will quote me saying, physician, heal yourself. We have all heard what happened at Capernaum. Do the same here in your own countryside. And he went on to tell his disciples that no prophet is ever accepted in his own country. And so what he, what he has when he comes back then is kind of a sharp, a sharp rebuke. And uh, he is anticipating what they're thinking about him. We know if he anticipates them saying that, that that is what they're thinking. And uh, having been caught once again um, with the truth hanging out of their mouths, um, it infuriates them, it enrages them. And, uh, and so Jesus leaves and, and goes to the countryside. Interestingly enough, Mary reveals this side of human nature to the Lord as well. For she's there. She's the one that told him that, um, you know, to change the wine into water. Nevertheless, she is also the one who records the reaction to that changing of the wine into the water. Where, in fact, where, in fact, they say that, uh, let's throw him over the cliff and get rid of him. He's really annoying because he's showed us to be kind of a petty people that we are. And, uh, and that's pretty irritating because I would like to be more like the benevolent Egyptian servant who actually does, <clears throat> um, you know, who, who actually does then praise the Lord for what he has done. The, uh, the the simple wine servers, the simple stewards at the uh, at the Pennsylvania Post, did not 
you know, not serve the wine because he didn't know where it came from. He only served the wine because he did know where it came from. And uh, in so doing, he was sharing the miraculous power of the Lord himself with prophets of, of um, with, with with the people of with the people of Nazareth, sorry, and um, so Jesus then kind of calls out this dark edge of human nature pretty accurately in the first part of the gospel, um, and then his reaction is affirmed in the very last paragraph of the gospel that everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They took their feet and hustled him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill their town was built on, and intending to throw him off the cliff. But he stepped through the crowd and he walked away. This is exactly what happens to the Christian communities of the modern age. That when, in fact, we reject the healing presence or even the accusing presence of Jesus Christ, we simply step outside the sidelines and we refuse to pay any attention whatsoever to his altar in heaven. And that's our goal. And if that's our goal, then it's our goal to accept the admonitions of the Lord. It's our goal to accept what the Lord has to say about us. It's our goal to prove that the Lord has looked upon favorably to us. And it's our goal to make him feel like he wants to do miraculous things as, as, uh, as, as the people of Nazareth wanted him to do, but not to get angry when he doesn't do it, not to get upset and angry and uh, hostile because he won't do for us what he did so many years ago. We know that he can, we know that he will, you know that he does so in response to both the social, political, and personal stories that are before us. We know that he demonstrated that in the New Testament and got in trouble for it because they tried to kill him for it. They gave a great effort on his part to uh, make a story. And to make that sad story is one that comes down to us from generation to generation. We have to be able to rejoice in the good the Lord does, not only for ourselves, but for others. And in rejoicing in that story for ourselves and for others, what we really, really want to do is rejoice that the Lord has come among us, that he is with us, that he is from us, that he is from our place, that he has spent time in our homes, in our families, within ourselves, and that he still is able to work through physical hands um, for those other people who are um, unwilling to accept his generosity to those few whom he does. So as we ponder this gospel, let's look at our own conscience and let us ask the Lord, what is it possible today, Lord, for you to do for me and for me to do for you? If we can come up with some kind of a balance, some kind of a response, then we can go forward with a certain amount of optimism and a certain amount of joy. And we should give, we should give gratitude to the Canaanite woman, to the woman from Sidon, um, and to the widow from Zarephtha, 
and learn with these people what it means to be holy, to be faithful, and to trust in the Lord at all times, even when he disappoints us and even when he doesn't do what we ask him to do. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. So